I'm going to ask you to grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, as we continue to work our way through the Sermon on the Mounts. Uh, we are over halfway, I think. Uh, so we are, we are approaching the end. It moves a little faster, particularly as you come into chapter 7. Uh, but page 854 of your pew Bibles, as always, if you do not have a Bible, take that Bible home with you. Uh, we can replace it um, and even get you a nicer one if you would like. Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we want to pick up where we left off last week um, in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll start in verse 19. If you'll stand with me out of reverence for God's Word, we will read the words of Jesus. Matthew the Evangelist writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, giving us the words of our Savior. Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask, as always, every time we gather for the same thing, because we need the same thing every week, we need the goodness of the gospel and to transform us. The gospel we believe, we need to be changed by it. Open our entire being from our hearts to our head, uh, in our mind, in our eyes, in our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet that we would become more like Jesus because we've encountered the Jesus as revealed in your word. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. May you be seated. What would you say is the absolute worst investment anyone ever made, or at least an investment decision or the lack of a decision made? Now, I'm not an economist. I'm not an investment historian or anything like that. Um, but I, I would like to propose an option in this discussion. Uh, in 1979, a, uh, a, a well-known college basketball player who played for Michigan State University had just come off national championship, had just been drafted in the first round by the Los Angeles Lakers, signed to one of the, if not the, uh, most lucrative rookie deals in the history of the NBA up to that point. And with the fame and the notoriety and the wealth and everything else came the important decision of what shoe was he going to wear. And so there were three uh, major contenders. Well, let me say there were two major contenders with, with a, another one making their pitch. The two main ones were the two largest shoe companies in the NBA. One was Adidas, or as we say in America, Adidas. The other was Converse. Uh, you may not know that, uh, know this, but, but Converse was the largest shoe company, particularly as related to making basketball shoes. Up came a third company, a little company. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. They went by the name of Nike. Nike was new on the scene. They'd only been around for maybe two years, maybe three. And, and they came uh, up to then Magic Johnson and said, you know, we don't have the money that Converse and Adidas have. We can't give you what they can offer you. What we can do is offer you $100,000 a year plus stock. And remember, Magic Johnson was 20 years old, 21 years old. Let me ask you, which would you choose? 
1979, millions of dollars in addition to your salary from the Lakers and to be part of a shoe company that has signed all the other big uh, players. For example, Larry Bird has signed with Converse. And due to the rivalry going all the way back to college and into the NBA, they can make more money off of the advertisers, be the two main figures for Converse. Or would you take a mere $100,000, which sounds like a lot of money to, 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 to us, I guess, but uh, especially in 1979, um, would you take that with stock? How many 21-year-olds are thinking about stocks? Well, as some of you may know, uh, Johnson went to Converse, and as a result of that decision, he could have had stock in, in, in Nike at 18 cents a share. I just looked it up this morning. Nike now sits at $105. For those of you who, who uh, studied uh, math in Owen County, let me tell you what that comes down to. From then to now, Magic Johnson has... Uh, by making the wrong decision, basically, because no one buys Converse anymore, he gave up over $5 billion. That is a poor investment. But if that is true when it comes to our finances, how much more is it true when it comes to our spiritual well-being? One of the problems that we have is that we make poor investment decisions. I can't help you with stocks. I can't tell you what to buy. I can't tell you what retirement plan to have. But, but I think Jesus is interested in the decisions we make for our longevity, our spiritual well-being. So what he does is Jesus gives us three illustrations. This isn't unique to Jesus. If we had time, we'd go back to chapter 5 where Jesus gave us three Illustrations there, you may remember it was the salt, the earth, the light of the world, and city on a hill. Here we get three more such metaphors, and each of them draw us to consider our spiritual well-being. The first one regards the heart here in verses 19 to 21. Notice that it starts there. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth, rust, destroy, and thieves break in and steal. Now, I, I, for all the reading I've done this week, from what I can tell is we overcomplicate this illustration. Uh, I think we can figure out what it is he's talked about. If you go to the ancient world, you, you didn't really have banks the way we think of banks. You didn't have certainly a stock market the way we think. You didn't have the sort of investments. One of the things you had was a backyard. We had other places you could secure your wealth. You may remember the story where, where Jesus tells of the man who, who found treasure buried in a yard. He went and purchased the, the, the land because the value of the treasure was more than what he lost in buying the land itself. Now, why are people burying treasure? Because you didn't really have a whole lot of other options. People would store their wealth in places they thought that it would be most secure and last the longest. So, so take the phrase, uh, store up treasures, a word that we might use is the word invest. Don't invest in things of this earth. Of course, we are laying up treasure even now. Perhaps you are going to work and you are counting down the days of your retirement. Uh, you know, and maybe the last few years you've contributed a little more to that retirement because you just can't wait. You've got it all planned out. Or maybe you're younger and you're thinking, man, I'd like to retire early or retire on time, right? And, and you're doing whatever it is. You're, you're storing up treasure. You're laying up treasure in this investment. Maybe now you are laying aside money for your summer vacation and you think if I put this little 
little bit aside with each payday, I, I, we, we could certainly take that nice vacation. Jesus' point then is quite simple. What you invest in matters and reveals your hearts. It reveals the things that are important to you. I am not investing in things that I don't care about. I will invest in things I do care about. Either We will either invest in temporary goods that are prone to destruction, uh, decay, and thievery, or we will invest in eternal things that will forever remain secure. Now, this has been the running theme that Jesus has had for, for over a chapter now. If we were to go back to chapter 5, starting verse 17, going to end the chapter, you may remember... Jesus argued that unrighteous acts stem from the heart. You've heard it said don't commit murder, but really the issue is hate and anger. You've heard it said don't commit adultery, but the real issue is, is lust. You've heard, don't, don't, uh, you've heard an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. I tell you, don't retaliate. Love your neighbors. All of this comes from the hearts. And in chapter 6, what, we, what we've seen up to last week is Jesus' point that righteousness stems from the heart. So if unrighteousness comes from the heart, righteousness comes from the heart. So if you're the sort of person who, who, who you're, you're charitable with your giving, uh, but you do it to be showy, then, then that's not righteousness. That's just more wickedness. Rather, righteousness is going to stem from the heart. If you're the sort of person who, who, who prays in order to be seen and approved by others, well, that's not righteousness because righteousness comes from the heart. And the same thing we saw last week with fasting. So what motivates uh, hypocritical piety is this pursuit of validation. Now notice here, Jesus is saying that what you invest in matters. And if you're investing in earthly things, let's say in this context, the approval and the validation of others, you are making a foolish investment. Notice what he does with this illustration. Okay, so you're going to invest in treasures on earth. Okay, there's a problem with that. They're not eternal. He mentions three sources of wealth, and I'm stealing these three categories from John MacArthur because I couldn't approve upon them. The first uh, way that the ancients measured wealth was through garments. Garments were, and in many ways still remain, a sign of wealth. I don't want to brag, um, but yesterday I went and bought me a new suit. Now, you know... You know, to, to me, I don't like dressing up. I don't. This is as good as you're going to get from me, okay? I don't like it, but I have to wear suits every once in a while, and so I went out and got it. I'm not going to tell you what the color is. I'll say that for another illustration. Um, but uh, I went out and got me a suit, and let me tell you, there are a few things in life I dislike more than that. I text my wife halfway through that, and I said, I absolutely despise shopping for clothes. This may be the most masculine thing about me. I absolutely despise it. One of the things I've noticed about uh, uh, shopping for a new suit is that I am not their stereotypical clientele. You go to these nice men's stores, right? And they, they're used to people who have the money to lay it down. I don't, right? I, I, I don't. It, it costs a lot to, to, to look good, especially when you look like this. And so I think those are the sort of guys they would prefer if I were like moody, you know, like I want this. I don't want that. Measure correctly. No, this isn't exactly what I wanted. I'm taking my business elsewhere. I think they'd rather have that guy than me. You know, you come in, what are you looking for? A suit. What kind of suit? One I can afford. Right? And, and, then, and then they go out and say, well, do you want tailored? Do you want slim? Like, I don't know what those words mean. I don't know what they mean. And he's trying to tell me, uh, like, what size I wear. I'm like, these britches fit me fine. Get that size. And the guy, I'm quoting him, he, he, I said britches, and he goes, britches. And then he moved on. <laughs> moved on. I, that, that's just, that just, 
you know, used to my, my kind. You know, I'm just a country boy out in the big fancy city store, right? Now, now no, notice that we, we measure wealth by garments, but it is not itself a commodity of wealth. In the ancient world, it was a commodity. Think about it. You go back to the story of, of Joseph and the coat of many colors. That's more than a fashion statement. That was basically uh, Jacob giving his son wealth. Wealth that he had robbed his other kids of having. This is a, a form of, of wealth. But there's a problem with garments. A little thing Jesus mentions called moths. And we don't think about this as much now. But I'm sure you've noticed that, that even your clothes, if you wash them too much or you keep them in the closet too long or whatever it is, eventually they do start, start to wear down. Uh, I'm the sort of person, when I do laundry in, in, in the family, there are two categories of you, what you put in the wash and dryer. There are towels and there are clothes. I do not cipher between colors. I do not cipher between who wears them or if they're fancy or not. And I tell my wife, I said, if you want me to do laundry, I'm going to do it my way. Right? And, and so she'll come in and like, you, you, you didn't put this in the laundry. You're like, I don't know. It's in the dryer right now. Won't you go check? You know, and I don't know how many times. You've ruined this shirt. Like, you're just going to buy five more to replace it anyways. What were we talking about? The point is, is that if you measure garments as a commodity, that is a temporary source of investment. The other category are grains. Now, here is, is, is this is an important commodity, especially in a predominantly agricultural society. You may remember this, the parable Jesus told of the man who tore down his barns to build bigger ones. His wealth was tied to grain. Now, the word you see here Jesus warns you about is the word rust. Your translation probably has it. It may not. Uh, mine certainly has it. That is an unfortunate translation. The word there is the word meaning to eat. And so let me give you just three examples so you know I'm not making this up. In these three examples, I can give you others. You'll notice that the Greek word used here by Jesus describes eating. So, so yes, rust eats metal, but that's not what Jesus has in mind here. What he's describing is, is how grain, if you're not careful, it can be eaten, not by humans. Have you ever found, had this happen to you? You, you go in your, your cabinets, you pull out that box of cereal or Pop-Tarts or whatever it is you know, that, that you eat, and someone or something has chewed a hole in the bottom of that box or bag. What is that? It's a mouse. At which point, ladies, you scream, and your husband comes in thinking there's an axe murderer in the house. Come to find out there's a mysterious mouse somewhere in the house that he has to now go hunt. He has to take off work, got to find that mouse. Well, that's the problem with grain is that it is perishable. Even now, we put uh, uh, expiration dates on our food because grain, though you may make that investment, is itself perishable. There's a third category here that Jesus mentions, and that is gold. Gold is a precious metal that has long been a form of wealth. The problem with gold is it attracts thieves. The majority of graves of ancient kings around this world, when we discover those graves, they are empty of gold. I remember on our honeymoon, my wife and I were watching the Discovery Channel. You, Jen Zetters, you just Google it. And um, they had a, a, an episode about a mummy. They found a mummy, and they were going to go through all the stuff, and at the other end of this room was the mummy. And my wife and I were on a honeymoon. You know, we'd never really been alone before because we, when we were dating. So we thought, we're going to find out what's in this mummy. I want to see the mummy. You want to see the mummy now, don't you? And so we're like, we're going to sit here and watch this thing, thinking it's only one episode. 
at the, at, before every commercial is when we come back, we'll open up the mummy. So we, we wait, they come back to the commercial, still not opening the mummy. They're, they're getting all this other stuff that's everywhere else. And it, it's like four episodes later, we're still watching this thing. And finally they open up the mummy. There's no mummy in it. It's like gold and statues. And, and the uh, 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 Egyptianologist says, this is better than a mummy. I said, not for those watching at home. I've invested my life in this mummy, and there's not a mummy involved. But it's rare to find a, a, a tomb or a grave of ancient king with the gold remains. In fact, right here in the state of Kentucky, supposedly where all of our gold is to be found, not that it's based off of our uh, 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 commerce anyways, is right here in Kentucky at Fort Knox. I taught a class years ago when I was a professor uh, at near Fort Knox, and I asked them, I said, the most important question I have for you all today is, is there still gold in that thing? Yeah, like you all will be the experts. But, but why do we have to put it there? Because we know that gold is something that attracts thieves. But you see, the point remains. To invest in earthly things are risky and will disappoint in the end. We should invest in heavenly things, eternal things. So verse 20, in contrast to treasure on earth, we are told to invest in treasures in heaven where we are free of risk of destruction and depreciation. Moss, mice, and thieves cannot rob us of such treasure because they are eternally secure. Living for the glory of God is a greater investment than to live for the approval and the glory of man. And you see the point is made very clear in verse 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The things you invest in are a reflection of your hearts. Well, I mentioned earlier about Magic Johnson making the poor decision to go with Converse instead of Nike. Years later, another young phenom college student who left uh, college er earlier from North Carolina University uh, was drafted by the Chicago Bulls. Michael Jordan was given the same three options. He could do Adidas, he could do Converse, or he could do Nike. You know what decision he made, don't you? What is it that sold Michael Jordan? Is that he didn't want to make the same mistake Magic had made before him. And to this day, here's, here's the famous ad of, of uh, him and his Jordans, his Air Jordans. But uh, as a result, just off that single shoe deal, he's a billionaire. Now, he's done a bunch of other stuff and sound investments. In fact, it came out years later that when Charles Barkley came up to the NBA, Barkley had to make the same decision all the other players had to make. And Jordan pulled him aside. He says, Barkley, why don't you do this? Take a small salary from Nike and take as much stock as you can get. To this day, Charles Barkley is a very wealthy man for many reasons, perhaps chief among them. In fact, he said, I've made more money off that single deal than I ever did in the NBA. Your investments matter. Are you going to invest in things that depreciate and are destroyed and will not go with you? Will you invest in the things of God? Notice the second illustration is if the first looked at the heart, the second looks at the eye. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. I can't, I think we overcomplicate this. You read all the commentaries, they're all over the map. I think this is pretty simple. Uh, if when we think of blindness, we think of darkness, right? So I have terrible eyesight. You've heard me make the joke. When I take my glasses off, you all look uh, much better. But, but I'm not blind. Um, I, I have very poor eyesight. I can see colors more than anything. But I'm not blind. But if I were to be completely blind, we associate blindness with darkness. 
And if we associate blindness with darkness, then it makes sense that to the ability to see is associated with light. Now, the idea of eye and, 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 and seeing and, and light is not a new one in the Sermon on the Mounts. Uh, 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 well, uh, uh, for example, we can go back to chapter 5. You remember this, you are the light of the world. You see Jesus is picking up on the imagery of light. You are the city on a hill. We can look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 25. This is where he talks about temptation. If, you're, if your eye causes you to sin, what's the point? Here, here you see that what is your focusing on could be a source of your destruction rather than focusing on something that is significantly better. Later in John's gospel, Jesus was use the will heal a blind man um, and then he'll go into the teaching that how he is the light of the world this is clear in the bible we associate blindness with darkness and seeing with light uh, so sight is light now the eye is the organ of focus we we know this and and so for example if you're a fan of sports what's the most important rule in batting in baseball keep your eye on the ball if you want to swing and miss, your eyes are going to be focused elsewhere. If you want to be a good point guard in, in basketball, what's the most important skill you have to learn? Don't dribble like this, right? Because then it's easy to not know what your team is doing for the defense to come get it. In football, what does the quarterback do before he hikes it? He takes a final look at the defense. In every sport, what you focus on matters most about your success in that sport. The same is true with how we live our, uh, live our lives. What it is you focus on the most will determine the, the, your long-time spiritual health. Either you will keep your eyes on diminishing earthly things that will lead to your destruction, or you will stay focused on Jesus and stay centered on his gospel. Now, if you don't believe me, just consider what it is Jesus does from here on out in, in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, the very next passage where Lord willing will pick up next week starts verse 25. Notice what Jesus says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you would drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food? Is life not more than clothing? Now, what's the issue he's addressing here? Worry and anxiety. Now, what causes worry and anxiety? Your eyes are focused on the wrong thing. You often focus on the things you don't have, things you think you should have, the things you're entitled to, or on the blessings and the possessions of other people. That's why you can't sleep at night. That's why you worry about every little small thing. You're focused on the things you can't control rather than be grateful for what it is you've been blessed with. The issue is the eyes. Go over to chapter 7. You'll see the same thing. Jesus picks up on this. You see how these, these metaphors are, are pivot us in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 7. Judge not lest you be judged. Boy, I'm glad that's, that's where that discussion ends, right? Moving on. Right? To, be, to, to judge is whenever someone says something that you don't approve of. Right? You and I, we don't do that. It's what other people do to us. Verse 2. With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured for you. Why do you see the speck? In, in your brother's eye instead of the tree branch in your own eye. Did you, did you notice what Jesus just said there? Why do you see? I don't know if you know this or not, and I'm not a doctor, so you can't trust me what I say here, but you see with your eyes. What are you focused on in that scenario? The flaws of others as small as they might be over the wickedness and flaws of your own heart? Focus. Let me give you one more example. Go down to verse 7 of chapter 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Here's that word. Seek, and you will find. 
Knock and it will be opened to you. To seek is to see. You see that Jesus is going to pick up on this imagery of what it is you use your eyes for. If your heart is in the wrong place, your eyes will be focused on the wrong thing. If your heart is in the right place, on the glory of God for your life, your eyes will be focused on the right thing. Well, let's look at the third and final illustration here. We saw the heart, we've seen the eyes, and then we see the soul. The final illustration regards our soul and the seat of our deepest desires and longing. Again, we have the illustration, no one can serve two masters, either he will hate the one or love the other. Um, by definition, slaves have one master. By definition, slaves have one master. Now remember, in Jesus' time, slavery was quite ubiquitous. The, the estimates are all over the map. Uh, the more conservative ones I came across is 10 to 20% of the Roman Empire were slaves. So if you take a, a uh, population in the first century of 50 million people in the Roman Empire, that means 5 to 10 million of them were slaves. If you go into the city of Rome, it could be, some estimates I've seen, up to almost half of the population were slaves. The reason the Romans didn't uh, uh, have slaves with some sort of marker and they had to wear certain clothes or something like that, is because they were afraid that once the slaves realized how many of them there were, they would revolt and the Roman Empire couldn't stop them. And we know that there were efforts to do that, Spartacus being the most famous, that they crucified on both sides of the road for miles as a result, to put it down. There's slaves everywhere in Jesus' time. But by definition, slaves are the exclusive property of a single master. Therefore, the scenario Jesus describes here is kind of ludicrous. The scenario doesn't exist. Because by definition, slaves are owned only by a single master. And that ludicrous illustration, I think, is the point of the illustration. Loyalty to Christ while trying to also be loyal to your idols is a foolish errand. Yet it consumes and describes far too many American evangelicals. Where we want one foot in the church... We want one foot in with the world, and we want to pretend like this is just natural and good. Jesus would call us out here that either we are the slave of one or the slave of others. So you'll notice here that Jesus' point is, if you try to have two masters, you will end up choosing one of them. So it is with so many of us. Perhaps right now you're trying to do this little dance. You want just a little bit here of the world. You want a little bit here of Jesus. Let me tell you, at some point, you will choose one of them. And in my experience, it's almost always the world, that foolish investment rather than the investing in the goodness of God and his gospel. Jesus mentioned specifically, either you will be, uh, or you, 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 will, you cannot serve both God and money. The Greek word there is mammon, just means money. And, and here, Jesus has in mind greed as one of the chief idols. But I think we, we we have the liberty here to say that, that the idolatry that he, Jesus could choose goes beyond wealth, though it certainly is that. Like the Israelites of the Old Testament, our loyalties are often stretched between the true and living God and false idols. Can I give you the five most common idols you will find in the United States of America right now? They are everywhere, and when you see them, uh, you... you, 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 you uh, you'll, you'll know this makes sense. Five most common idols. It's, it's in your hand out there. The first is self. There is no more important idol than that of the self. What I think, what I believe, what I desire, what I, how I see myself, you must conform to me rather than me conform to the world. Secondly is, of course, 
uh, of intimacy, sex, that, that it drives everything we are and do. You can't escape it. Thirdly is stuff. There's your greed. We love stuff. Fourthly is science, that we convince ourselves that if science is on our side, even though we deny reality, then, then uh, we are on the so-called right side of history. Finally, the state. Let's be honest. We are turning the state into a source of power and divinity. What else do you expect whenever in a secular society you fundamentally reject the role of God in that society? Someone's going to take the role of the divine, and the state is always willing to do that. But let me show you how else this works. It isn't just that we, we are polytheists, that we have these five gods. I want you to show how, and we could add more to this list, I want to show you how they interact with each other. For example, um, uh, the god of sex has been politicized. Have you know, noticed that? What you hold to certain issues of morality determines, frankly, the way you vote and the car you drive and every, all the other decisions you, you make. The god of entertainment has been sexualized. I don't know how many times my wife and I, we've, we're just going to put on a, a short television show or a movie or something. Um, and, and I was watching Arsenal last night, uh, and I had my headphones in. My wife was finished her show, and she goes, this hasn't been in the whole show. Where does this come from? I mean, entertainment has become sexualized. Thirdly, the god of power and politics has been become entertainmentized. I think that's a, that's, a, that's a real term. I mean, think about it. When we check in with the political world, it's about who's up, who's down, who entertains us. Not what is true, what is false, what is good for society. It's about who's winning, who's losing. That's what we care about. We don't care about policies. We are polytheists to our core. How many of us as Christians, however, have made shipwreck of our faith because we have proven to be more loyal to our idols? Maybe your temptation is a boyfriend that at least temporarily seems to satisfy your loneliness. You see the idol? Maybe your temptation is a robust career that gives you that sense of achievement you need so much. You hear the idol? Maybe it's a mistress that never tells you no. You see the idol there? It isn't that you don't love Jesus, it's that you don't love him exclusively. And so what you're trying to do is serve two masters. You end up loving one of them more than the other. You make a shipwreck of your faith. Citizens of the kingdom who wish to enjoy the blessings of God and his presence must choose the right path. I'm reminded of the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 18 when he looks over at the people of Israel and says, how long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord Yahweh is God, follow him. If it is Baal or Baal, then follow him. And here it is, the people didn't answer him a word. I'm willing to bet there's a certain temptation in your life that has the focus of your eyes, that has the demands of your heart, that is consuming your soul, that is contradictory to the gospel of Jesus, and you are trying to figure out a way you can navigate both idols, both gods. And you can't. You can't. What are you willing to lose in those idols in order to gain far more of a Jesus? What are you willing to give up for the sake of the gospel? Well, many of you all know that um, in high school and later when we got married, I worked in retail. And um, retail is as close I hope to ever get to purgatory. But I, I did work in retail for five years total. And perhaps my least favorite part of retail, other than the customers, was without a doubt uh, the uh, uh, inventory. 
I worked at a bookstore and I ran the music department. Then I ran all the inventory uh, my last half of my, of my tenure with that company. And I did not like inventory. I despised it. Um, it, it was always uh, my off day that we had to do it after hours when we closed. And it was, it was just not something I enjoyed, especially when I was in charge of the inventory. I particularly didn't enjoy it. Um, but the truth is I knew then that inventory was critical to the well-being of the store I worked for and the company I worked for. We need to know what we had. We need to know what we didn't have. We need to know what was stolen. We need to know what was missing. We need to know what we needed to order. Inventory was an important role in our well-being. The same is true for your soul. So let us look at these illustrations. Let us take inventory of our spiritual lives. What are you investing in? And will it last for an eternity? What are you focused on? And is it true righteousness? And what are your deepest desires? Is it for the glory of God to be known among the nations and for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Where is your heart? What's the focus of your eyes? What is the desires of your soul? Maybe you're here, and the truth is, is it's all out of whack because you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. I beg of you, do not leave here today until you get that right. Maybe you're here and you're, you're having to take that inventory of your life and your motivations are off because your heart is, is wicked. I'm gonna ask you come and get that right. Maybe your eyes have been focused on lesser things rather than glorious things. I'm going to ask that you come and you, and you turn things around. Or maybe it is that you're, you are between two opinions, idols and Yahweh. I'm going to ask that today you lay down those idols and crush them forever and to live a life focused exclusively on the glory of God and his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would be so kind is to help us in this effort that we may be found